Welcome back, listeners, to Season 3 of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. I'm delighted to bring you another set of wonderful episodes and interviews this season that I hope you will enjoy. We'll be doing things slightly differently this season. Some episodes will contain our usual interview-based content, while others will highlight performance achievements of our members. I'm excited to introduce Chenny Gan as our guest for today's episode. We'll be talking and listening to a track from her Classic Meets Jazz series. So without further delay, let's get to this conversation. Hello, Jenny. Hi there, baby. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited to hear your story and to hear your music. So let's get started just with a background question. Can you introduce yourself to me and to our listeners? Yes, um, I'm Chenny Gan. I'm 41 years old. I immigrated to the United States from China when I was eight years old, and I've lived almost all my life in Georgia. I have two master's degrees in piano performance and collaborative piano and a doctorate from the University of Southern California with majors in musicology and minors in music theory and jazz studies. And um, during one of my master's studies, I studied for a summer in Salzburg, Austria. And that was the summer where I met my husband hiking. And so um, I've also lived in Germany for much of my life. And right now we commute a little bit between Georgia and Germany. So today it was minus 10 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's like very, very cold. <laughs> There's about 10 inches of snow on the ground here, but it's very beautiful as well. And um, yeah, I, I love music. And as you can read in my bio, I love being adventurous with music, trying new things, such as combining jazz and classical music, or performing in different ways in, for different audiences or different locations, combinations, etc. So can you take us a little back to the beginning of your musical journey? How did you get started in music? I don't really remember, but what, I, what my uh, family tells me is when I was young in China, somebody visited town and they played piano. This was um, in the 80s, so it was the first quote-unquote foreigner in town, and so um, maybe a European or an American person, and I thought this was a pretty neat instrument, so my mom got informed me. It was not very easy at the time, and um, we probably had the first piano on the block, and um, so I started lessons with five and a half, years old. My father's friend became my teacher and I thought she was super mean <laughs> and I had no attention span. Like she asked me to do stuff like five times in a row and I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> I can't even, you know, do, I can't even sit still for like 10 minutes. And so about a year or two after I started piano, I quit because I just thought this is not my thing. And then we immigrated to the United States and my parents thought, well, let's try again, see if she wants to play piano. So we found the teacher. And of course, I found a very different type of teaching in the U.S. We found a nice old lady, you know, in North Augusta, you know, where, where we had immigrated. And I was praised all the time. And for the first time in my life, I was like, oh, she's just telling me good job all the time. And I really liked it. You know, of course, in later life, I realized praise all the time is also not 
um, not the best thing. So right now I try to balance my own teaching with praise, criticism and equal and equal amounts, you know, positive reinforcement, but still a level of strictness. I think I credit that to my own early education. And actually, I, I didn't know I would major in piano until maybe my sophomore, junior year of college. I had set my sights on some other paths, um, possibly a medical path, psychology, something to do with international business or politics. But I fell in love with the fine arts at Wesleyan College, where I also teach right now. I got a double major in music and studio art, so painting and musicianship. And then when it came time to uh, go to graduate school, I thought because music is so athletic that I probably needed to choose that path to not lose it. Um, whereas I could probably go back and paint later. You know, Schoenberg took up painting later in his lifetime. And, you know, so painting seemed more direct and did not need as rigorous training to me as music. And so that's how I kind of stumbled upon this career as a musician. <laughs> so I will admit, I took a look at your website and I did see some of your artwork. Can you talk a little bit about your style and your life with the visual arts for us? Yeah, I've always loved painting since I was a little girl. And I think all the fine arts are related. I think, you know, painting can be musical and music can be visual and music is very theatrical. Music is a form of movement. And and so, and I think all the arts touch on something about the human experience that that's spiritual in some way, right? That takes us beyond everyday reality or takes us beyond the everyday grind. And so I think all the arts are very integrated. My own style that I developed in my undergraduate days is kind of large, colorful, organic paintings because I really love biology. I was a really good student in like biology and anatomy. I think my parents or my mother was a little disappointed that I didn't go into medicine. And so, you know, I, I, I think a lot of my paintings look like maybe cells or molecules, something biological. I'm really inspired by plants. I'm inspired by microcosms. Um, so, you know, you could take a little cactus or you can take a little flower or something, but if you blow it up really big and immerse yourself in it, you put it on a five foot by five foot canvas, it feels like you're swimming in this world. And I, I think that relates to my view of the world as well, that everything's kind of a microcosm of something else. So two follow-ups to that. The first one is you earlier talked about painting can be musical. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think the typical example musicians know is Impressionism, right? Impressionism was jointly an, an artistic visual movement and a musical movement. So the strokes of a Monet painting or the strokes of a Gauguin painting create this overall kind of blurry image. When you get too close, you don't really recognize what it is, but when you stand back, you see you see what it is and it makes an impression of this moment, right? And so Debussy or, you know, Ravel or Satie, they also have these paintings painted with notes, you know, like gardens in the rain or something like that. And so I think the gestural aspect of painting 
can be very musical or the way the strokes are laid on the canvas can have a rhythmic effect. So I think those are maybe kind of one way where they're related. For my senior thesis in my bachelor's degree, I did a painting, I mean, I did a art exhibit with a concert. So I made a painting for every piece on my concert and then I recorded a CD of that. So let's say, I don't know, the third movement of a Schubert Sonata is kind of a two-part, you know, minuet and trio or something. So I made this binary, I, I put a binary figure into the painting. I made it very small because in a in a sonata form, you know, the minuet and trio is kind of the tiniest, tiniest movement in comparison to the other three. So my other follow-up question was, you talked about the the size and, you know, you, you referenced looking at a cactus and then zooming in and then really like putting it on a large canvas. And it made me realize when I look at your paintings online, I have no idea what the proportions are. Do your paintings tend to be kind of larger than life sized? Yeah, the ones online are usually about five or six feet tall. Yeah, they're quite large. And do you do you sell your paintings at all? I did, and I still do. Or I I also look for adopters for them. If anybody wants to hang one <laughs> in their home and just take it, I mean, I'm I'm lucky that I don't have to make my living from that now. And so, yes, I would sell them or give them away or loan them out to anyone who wants one because. I don't have enough space for them. <laughs> that was another reason I went into music. It's ironic, but I thought I could make a living easier than painting. I, I felt that because, you know, buying the art supplies was so expensive. And then, you know, and then you, you make a lot of art, but then you don't have any guarantees that it will sell. And so you just keep making, but you need a lot of storage and space and supplies. And I thought, okay. If I <laughs> if I could play piano like a company or church gigs or whatever, I wouldn't need as much space or materials, and I I might make an easier living that way. <laughs> That's fascinating. Thank you for allowing me to trace down that rabbit trail. So you mentioned earlier about commuting between Georgia and Germany. What is that like? Yeah. So. It is is very interesting. It's enriching. It's not it's not all fun and games. A lot of people think we come to Germany on vacation, but we really come to see family and it just happens to be in a beautiful vacation spot. So we live between Munich and Salzburg at the foot of the Alps and it is gorgeous here. But we also have to pay taxes here. We have to clean the house here. <laughs> we have to get everything ready. We go visit the in-laws. We, we do the everyday types of things and less the touristy types of things. I love the people here. I love the nature here. And I love getting the chance to be a part of another culture. I felt like I never could play Mozart correctly until I was in Salzburg and I was sitting at a cafe or I was looking at the way people dressed and walked and talked in that city. I was looking at the way, like, they pruned their gardens or you know because that's that level of attention to detail that's this european aesthetic that sometimes an american education doesn't afford you and so yeah yeah so we come here as often as we can especially 
to to see my husband's parents and I try to have some gigs here too when I can to have a good excuse to come here and I think people here are very different from Georgia there are advantages to both people here my husband likes to joke like the first answer is always no <laughs> and so they're very direct and I think you could compare it to kind of the New England culture in the U.S. Maybe like New Jersey or Boston, right? People are very direct and, and they do everything pretty fast. And Georgia is kind of the opposite. Everybody's very nice, very hospitable, very open, but they do things a little bit slower, right? It's a slower pace of life. And I think it has to do with the temperatures. You know, northern cultures tend to have a faster pace of life. I speak German, and that's that's interesting too to kind of turn my brain around, you know, to try and change to a different language. It it changes my character. I behave differently in a German society than if I'm in a Chinese kind of context or in an American one. And so it's it's an elastic. It's also very athletic, or forces me to adapt often, and I enjoy that challenge. So before we turn our attention to uh, highlight some of your recording projects and one piece in particular, I just wanted to ask questions about some of your other projects. One in particular I noticed on your website is titled Bach to Rock, 1,000 Years of Music History in 60 Minutes. What is that about? Yeah, I have to give a shout out to my colleague, Dr. Michael McGee, who teaches music theory and history and appreciation at Wesleyan College. He came up with this idea. His class is called Bach to Rock. And so we we literally go from medieval chant all the way through, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean and, and rock and roll. I think the song we chose is Don't Stop Believing by Journey and, and everything in between. And we introduce the audience to the major periods of music history using two pianos and violin and cello and percussion. So is it like a lecture recital? A little bit, a little bit. The the um, notes on the program are like 20 pages. So we, we give the audience a little bit of a snippet about what each period is defined by, right? The affects and the typical sounds and gestures. And then we talk a little bit on top of that. And we try to do it within an hour, right? So it's like, this blitz through through music history. It's for a general audience, but I think it's entertaining for, for anyone. Yeah. yeah, that sounds great. So the other question I had about your projects is I noticed that you play for some silent films. Tell us about that. Yeah, I started that in Germany over 10 years ago. Just the local town cultural organization asked me if I would accompany a silent film live. I said, I've never done it, but I'd love to. And that first film was called Buster Keaton Spite Marriage. And since then, I've done three or four additional Buster Keaton films, a Harold Lloyd, some Charlie Chaplin. I did a Georges Méliès, who was a French pioneer of films um, last summer. And so it, it was interesting because it, it forced me to improvise, even though what I did for these films is I chose a lot of pieces that I thought would fit, you know, I might categorize the action like 
it's a funny moment or the guy falls off the stairs or, you know, he's running, chasing a car or, you know, you, you break down these moments into kind of a mood or an affect. And then you try and find music that depicts it adequately. Um, I like to mix classical music and jazz music. And then, of course, there's the timing. So you're watching the film. And of course, if you finish playing your Gershwin prelude or whatever, the, the scene is not necessarily done. And so you have to come up with ways to improvise in the moment and try to try to make it work to the film. So I love doing those and they're quite popular and they're popular with all kinds of audiences, you know, from six years old to like 90 year old. And so I think those are, yeah, they're kind of hidden gems and they're rediscovered these, these films that are classics in, in history. That's fascinating. I would love to see you in action. I don't know that I've ever actually watched a silent film. So that sounds really interesting to me. So I'd love to come to Valdosta. (laughs) If you if you know anybody, you know, anybody who in nursing homes or like schools, schools have asked me to do them because children love these two. The the communication is just very transparent from the actors. Yeah, so so I guess that's an interesting follow-up question. I suppose all you need is a movie and a projector and a piano, and then you're good to go. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And I've played on all kinds of pianos and all kinds of theaters. They have these old traditional theaters with these honky-tonk pianos. I've played on electric grand pianos in an hour setting, so they would project the film on a quad or like a park or something. And I've also done just like concert grand pianos in a in a concert hall or something. So yeah. yeah. Wow, that's great. Let's yeah, let's stay in touch and chat about that for sure. So now let's turn our attention to this um, series that you have that you've titled Classic Meets Jazz. And I think there's a 2.0 at the end of that title. But tell us about that. Yes. Yeah, so I've loved jazz for a long time, probably since I was 15 or 16. When I was in high school, my private teacher gave me a book called 20s, 30s, and 40s Showstoppers. You may still be able to find this at the She Music store. And so I just read through that book. Of course, everything was notated out, but the harmonies and the sounds were interesting. Jazz harmonies and then the syncopation and the swing feel. And, And so I had some teachers who were not into jazz at all, in fact, even teachers who thought it might mess up my technique. I don't know if you if you um, read some of Joseph Hoffman's treatises, you know, the famous pianist, the turn of the early 20th century. Readers write in and say, Mr. Hoffman, what do you think of this ragtime stuff? He says, that stuff is bad. It's bad for fingers, you know. <laughs> so, which is not true. It, it, any kind of music can help you become more musical, I believe, and can help your technique, or it just has a different aesthetic. And I understand that jazz also had a problematic history, its association uh, with bars, and and then, you know, African-American subculture. And so, um, you know, in certain regions and times, it was not sanctioned. But we're coming into an age where jazz is now academic, right? Almost every university has now a PhD or master's in jazz studies. And so it's become America's classical music. And we're learning that it has just as many, if not more intricacies than anything written by Mozart, Chopin, Beethoven, Rachmaninoff. 
in fact, a lot of those composers love jazz. Ravel loved jazz. Rachmaninoff loved jazz. You know, even Beethoven in his late sonatas explores sounds of jazz, not that he knew what they were called, right? And so, yeah, so I just kind of secretly or by myself, I taught myself and then I took workshops where I could. And the great thing about jazz is you learn it by listening and you learn it by doing, even outside of the academy. And so I, I learned it myself. And so I like to create programming that combines both of those styles and more. The 2.0 is where I really try to fuse classical pieces and jazz pieces together rather than saying, okay, the first half of my concert is classical music. The second half of my concert is pre-written jazz stuff. So this is the first time that I truly improvise fully, improvise or compose my own arrangements of pieces. And so the 2.0, I haven't recorded anything that yet. Well, that's great. Okay, so let's talk about this piece that I picked out of this series. I'm going to butcher it, uh, but Schwanenze, is that how you say it? Schwanenze. Okay. That's one like in German. Yeah, it's from an album I recorded with a jazz trio in Germany. And the album itself is called Wassermusik. Wassermusik means water music. So we chose pieces that um, had to do with water. So there's Diforella in there. There's um, Aquarius somewhere over the sea, different, different pieces having to do with water. And is this a piece in this recording? Are you improvising it or have you notated it or is it someone else's arrangement? So I was inspired, I don't know if you know Kevin Olson, the great arranger. He he writes a lot of great intermediate, kind of late intermediate books. I think FJH, right, is his publisher. He teaches in Utah. I met him recently on Zoom. And I bought this classic meets jazz album he has. I think it's out of print now. And this was one of the songs in there. So I was inspired by that. So my little intro is inspired by that, but the rest is improvised completely. So no, nothing is notated. And we have four or five different takes from the recording and each take is different. We just happen to choose the, the one we like the best. And that's kind of the spirit of improv. I guess one could write things down, but then it feels less spontaneous. It's probably safer to do so. Um, but in the world of um, of the bona fide jazz musician, we have to improvise on the spot. Yeah, so I, I think that was going to be my follow-up question. I think you led us into it perfectly. What's the difference? Because you've recorded both styles. You've recorded classical and jazz pieces. What's the difference in process between recording classical and jazz? And you've talked about just now the, the improvisatory nature of jazz, but are there other aspects that might be different that's not immediately obvious to some outsider? Yeah, I mean, I would say a classical performance or recording is the most perfect you can get of the information that the composer has given you before, right? The the best dynamics, the best tempo, the least missed notes <laughs> that's written down. Yeah, and um, the most consistency. And then with jazz, which is a rhythmic music, and it's based on these harmonic progressions, I mean, you have to keep those harmonic progressions in mind. So you're thinking lines in your head or you're hearing the main melody, 
there are different ways to think of improv. One way is to take the melody and kind of go a little bit off of it, like a conversation or like saying the same sentence with different emphases. And then another way is thinking of purely the harmonic progression and you're thinking of the lines that fit with that. For example, if it's C major, what would be the notes that fit it? If it's a B flat seven chord, what would be the scale notes that would fit it? So there's several ways and approaches to improvisation. And then the rhythm, of course, which I mentioned before, because I think in classical music, you can have a little bit of rubato or you can have a little bit of forgiveness from the audience if you deviate from perfect rhythm. But in, in jazz, that's almost immediately obvious because if the rhythm is not solid, if it's not in the groove, then it kind of it kind of misses the original flavor of the music. So I know in classical recording, a lot of times they, they will do multiple takes of a specific section. And then the audio engineer will do a lot of edits so that he edits in the take that has the most correct notes or is the most successful. Do they do that for jazz recording since it's so improvised and organic? I don't know. Personally, for our, for our album, no. We every every piece is a full take of that track, and then we do four or five different takes, and we improvise differently each time. I mean, of course, we we plan in advance. Like, hey, Joseph, you get to jam two choruses. Two choruses means you get to go through two times the form, and Chenny gets three times, four times through the form, and then comes the drum solo. And then we'll play the melody and then we'll vamp until the end or something like that. We have kind of general instructions, but there may be. I mean, I know that in the world of pop, things are engineered to you know the end level and they're using a click track, right? A click track of perfect rhythm and every studio musician is on that click track. And so you can patch every single measure if you wanted to you can adjust the intonation but we didn't do that because we didn't have, have a click track our metronome was the drummer yeah and ourselves you know so it's a little bit more organic yeah yeah so if our uh listeners our podcast listeners and our gmta members want to learn more about you or find more recordings and works by you where can they go um they should go to my website um www.chenygan.com or they should just find me on the Westland homepage and call me, give me a call. I mean, I'm in Georgia. So I, I'd, I'd love to meet the colleagues, um, maybe come out, give a little workshop if anybody's interested in improvising. And yeah. Well, Chenny, this has been a really wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed getting to meet you and learn more about you. And I really love the vast array of interests that you have. I am so looking forward to sharing your work and your performance with our listeners. So I wish you happy teaching and happy students. And now let's take a listen.